welcome to the Conversations with Jason Campbell and Henrietta Galena. Guys, welcome back. We have been on, on a bit of a hiatus for a while. I was in Brazil after after being able to travel from New York during this COVID nightmare. Uh, I've been spending some time in Brazil, which has been amazing. And I, I literally has take, have taken some time off, but I'm resuming my, my veteran talent series and Henrietta will be joining us shortly. I have a, a few more interviews in this series, and then Henrietta should be back with us next month. She's out of the hospital, and she continues to recuperate, and I cannot wait to have her back. But until then, I am so excited to continue with this Veteran Talent Series. And for this episode, I have an old friend of mine on this episode, and her name is Natasha Slater. Hello, Natasha. Hi, Jason. How are you? Thank you so much for having me here with you. I feel very honored. I am excited to have this conversation with you, Natasha. And Natasha is an English-Italian, Milan-based PR entrepreneur in events and PR, essentially. And Natasha, you are certainly a veteran in this industry. And, and let's be honest, you know, like a lot of us, your, your resume is multi-hyphenated. And we have known each other since, you know, your late teenage years. So there is a lot... <laughs> There's a lot to talk about. There's a lot that, that this conversation will encompass. And so I would love to dive right into this and to hear about your journey through this fashion industry. And I know that you've been uh, an editor, you have been uh, a consultant, and you have done so many different things in the industry. So your insights are, are, are vast, and I'm really looking forward to hearing about your experience in this business and where it has taken you. As you said, Jason, it's a multitasking roller coaster. Okay. <laughs> yes. I, I've been on a similar, similar journey. It's been global. It's been an ebb and flow. It's been is encompass a lot. Now, why don't you chart your journey, sort of the highlights, Natasha, to owning and operating your own PR agency, working with top shelf fashion brands and major consumer brands and so forth. Give me, give me the, the highlights of your fashion career. Well, I think I'm going to start with what's going to be the most surprising fact is that I never planned on being a PR. And nobody's going to believe me when I say that because I'm just a natural born PR. So I never planned. I never studied for it. I never had any intention of being PR. My father's in PR and I exactly didn't want to do that. So, But I think that my journey really came from when I started studying arts uh, in London and I did a BA in mixed media arts. And I think ultimately I started thinking about orchestrating these situations. So sometimes I like to describe myself as a situationist. I create situations. And I think wherever I go, whatever I do, that applies. So as when we met, I started with journalism, just because I have an innate curiosity on others. I like to get to know people. I like to talk to people. And I love to hear people's stories, because that's really where I gain my knowledge. That's where I gain my life experience. I love to study people, but not in a kind of a research way. I just, I really vibe off energy from other people. 
And, you know, I'll often go up to people in the way that we met that just I'm attracted to and I'm attracted to their energy and I want them to be part of my situation, my life, and I want to be part of theirs. So from an early age, I was lucky enough to really start working straight away in bars and restaurants. And when I say lucky enough, most people think, well, what is she talking about? (laughs) That's a terrible job. But actually, I think that that is really where it all began. Because when you work within the service industry, one of the things that you understand, which I've taken throughout my whole career, is that my job is about providing a service. Okay, so whether you're doing nightlife, events, PR, ultimately, you're providing a service to help and benefit others and elevate others. And that's really what my mission is to do. That's what I like to do with my clients. So that's where it all began, began in London. I'm a real London girl, heart to heart. I started working in bars and restaurants. I was studying and it really began at 333 Club, which is on Old Street. And I started to be part of this moment when it was just the first members club ever in East London. And it was exciting, Jason. All the celebrities were there. Ricardo Tishi was there. Nicola Formichetti was there. Kylie Minogue was there. And it was the beginning of everyone's career. And all these musicians were there. Pete Doherty, the Libertines, the Strokes, everybody. And it's the first time I thought to myself, wow, you know, there's no girl DJs. And I had a friend, Mairead Nash, who then became Florence the Machine's manager. And I said, we should start DJing here. We happen to know the owner and we just made that happen. And that's really my story. I just literally decide I'm going to do something and I make it happen. Well, you mentioned that your father worked in PR. Were you mentored? And though you had reluctance to to enter the PR industry, were you mentored by him? I've never been mentored by my father. And I know this is also very strange. And I've also never worked with my father, really. There's only one moment in my life where I did decide to work with my father. And that was uh, just before the year 2000, where a boyfriend of mine thought it'd be a good idea for us to move to Milan. My father's British, but has a PR agency in Milan uh, called Noasis, which was very notable. And my father made me do all the horrible phone work because he's a British father. He didn't give me any kind of special treatment. If anything, he went out of his way to make me feel less special than anyone there because that's the British way. You know, you're 18, you get on with it basically. So I was like, I need to get the hell out of here. This is corporate. This is not me. I'm a creative. These people don't understand me. I'm an artist, you know. You know, I guess I learned how to make phone recalls with him. I have to say in my later life today, I would I would describe my father as my mentor. But for many years, my father had no idea what it is I did. And mostly I had no idea what he did either. So we just decided not to talk about work because when I was doing nightlife, I really, my dad's not even a good dancer. So, you know, <laughs> we did it. We did it. We, we really didn't come, you know, full circle there. But I think today I would, I'd describe my father as a mentor. Obviously, my father's an extremely accomplished, um, and I'm very lucky, an extremely bright man. Um, he was a professor of political science. He was also a professor at Harvard. He's an MIT PhD, John F. Kennedy scholar. You know, he's very modest. I'm not the modest one in the family. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's very modest, so I do his PR for him. But, you know, I think today, I think where my father mentors me, especially when I have crisis moments or when I have to deal with anything corporate, which was, I had to, I had to learn my world. Nobody taught me how to do my job, really. Um, I've had mentors along the way, but they've not been very conventional ones. Okay, fantastic. But, but you have been mentored and it has been an important part of your ascendancy. Well, I study people like, for instance, there was Vicky Pengilly, who's the owner of the 333 Club. They used to ask her. She was a terrifying woman. She hated really most women, but she liked me because I just understand how to help people in their job and how to make people give them the results that they want. And I think that if you want to be liked by anyone, 
make yourself useful to somebody. And, you know, that's a language, especially business entrepreneurs understand. They used to ask Vicky, where are your morals? And she used to say in the fucking till. Now, that's definitely not my morals or my point of view, but I was quite fascinated by her because I was like, wow, she's hardcore. She definitely taught me how to be a tough woman in nightlife. And because of her, I definitely had no scruples about going about it because I always had her as a reference. So she would be a mentor for my nightlife. Well, you know, Natasha, I've always considered you one of the smart ones. You know, as I said, I've known you since your late teenage years. And I remember in your early years, just as a journalist and writing, I I just remember you just sort of taking on whatever was in front of you. But I can imagine that being an English-Italian woman, particularly in Italy, that the sort of outspokenness and the confidence that you radiated, that didn't always go down well in a patriarchal place like Italy. Tell me of how you existed in those spaces during that time. And you were a young woman as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I don't really consider, although my mother's uh, Italian blood, I don't have an Italian citizenship. I just have a British and a US actually. So I guess when I came here, I felt very British and I feel very much a Londoner. I think what you get growing up from a city like London is sort of an innate sense of uh, courage and fearlessness and kind of ballsy. We call it being a bit ballsy and a bit feisty. Like anyone who says anything everybody knows I'm a feisty London girl. You know, if you're going to push me up the wrong way, I'm going to tell you how I feel. And that's really sort of, that's expected in London. That was not expected in Milan. (laughs) Milan's the opposite. It's about being nice, polite, wearing your Prada, sitting in the quiet corner, having your little cappuccino. And women are not supposed to exude their personality or their opinions in a very direct way. So I think that that's been to be honest you, part of my success in a city like Milan. And it's definitely been something that I've had to learn to mature and navigate and to adapt and change, to be really honest with you. I think that when I first came into the scene, I definitely was quite aggressive. And I think that that was okay because I was doing DJ nightlife. I think when I decided to start working in corporate, and, and I will call it fashion, but it's still corporate, Jason, because at the end of the day, when you're working for a big luxury brand, I had to adapt and I had to learn very, very quickly that, you know, when to speak, when not to speak. And definitely at the end of my career of nightlife, I was really frustrated that I was seen as a party girl here when, you know, I was running the whole show from like the business side, the money, the creative direction, like literally the whole team. I had no partners. So it was really frustrating as I just get discredited as being a party girl. And, you know, I've had to battle with that a lot, especially that was, it took me years to get off my tag as a DJ. I mean, now it's kind of like people don't even know that I used to be a DJ, but for a long time, people would only present me as a DJ, even after years of doing PR and events. And people would say, oh, Natasha Slater, the DJ. And I'd just be like, oh my God, are they going to move on from this, you know? And, you know, and it they just couldn't move on from it. So I had to work really, really, really hard to sort of uh, almost create this good girl side of Natasha and image. And it's always about playing with your image and role models. Well, yeah, let's get into that. Let's get into a bit of that image role playing, if you will. You know, you mentioned that Milan wasn't about a strong personality, the English girl at that time. But yet during that period, 
period. I mean, we're talking about the 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 knots, like the early knots. Fashion was still defined by a capital F, and never mind, Milan is one of the fashion capitals. You know, it's stapled. It has all the fabulous trappings of the you know the Versace shows and the Gucci shows, and all of that was that was a, a real. It continues to be, but that was an era when fashion was really, really intoxicating. Let's talk about yeah. let's talk about your existence during that time. Let's talk about the events that you produced during that time for the for the Pradas of the world and the different brands. Define that era for me in Milan and your work in well, that scene. Yeah, I mean, okay, it it was a really tough. Let's say when I was mentored into this world, it was definitely mentored a la Devil Wells Prada. Like, there's no joke. I mean, that literally is almost true, you know. And when people laugh about that, uh, you laugh about it, but you're also like, oh, it was kind of dreadful. But you had to act out into it as well, you know. It was like you had to know your place and you had to eat a lot of shit and God knows I've eaten shit. And in Italy, they call it la gavetta, which means literally like the the work experience. And I have been through very, very hard work experience in my life, you know. And I'm part of a generation of fashion people that you you didn't step over. You know, things are, we're in a very different world today. And I know that there's still a lot more work to be done, but it's a very different world. It was not an inclusive world at all. And nobody had any interest in including you. And you had to put up with some very difficult behavior. If I look back now, and if I if someone said to me, you needed three degrees in psychology in order to work in fashion, I most probably would have never stepped into it. <laughs> because, you know, I'm not, I, I did arts at uni. So, you know, I didn't really understand that I was going to be dealing with navigating this very difficult psychological situation and also being a British woman and a Londoner thinking in one way and then having to learn how it works in business in Italy. It's kind of like things are done but not said and they have a very different way of doing things. You know, they're not very vocal. Well, I just think, oh, well, let's just get it out all out in the open and everybody will be comfortable with that. <laughs> Definitely not liking that approach at all. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know, so for me, actually, the truth was, Jason, it was really, really hard to get into any work. I had lots of qualifications. I had lots of skills. I had lots of talents. And the reality is nobody would hire me. Nobody, because they'd see my CV and they would just terrify people because they think, oh, my God, you're going to be bored here in a corporate job. They were right looking back. But at the time, I was kind of desperate because I started doing DJing, nightclubs. I was running a party called Death Disco, which is Alan McGee's party, who's uh, actually the uh, founder of Creation Records, a very important record label that, you know, they saw the launch of Oasis in the world. And he said to me, oh, you could do my party in Milan. So I'd sort of been on the indie scene, but of course I wanted, I I had a baby, I had a small child, Jason. I was a single mother at six months years old. And you can imagine, it was terrifying. And one of my parties, my partner, unfortunately, got lost lost into drugs. And I found myself one New Year's Eve on my own without my party with my small baby thinking, I don't know what's going to become of my future, basically. And I had to reinvent myself. And I was trying to get a job in fashion. Nobody would hire me. So I went to London. A friend of mine said, look, I found this club. And I just think that you should come back here and start doing clubs again. I really had no choice. So I remember it was a rainy day in London and I came up with this name called Punk or Prada and I called one of my best friends who's a journalist at the time at Pop Magazine. And he said to me, that's a shit name. It will never work. <laughs> I was just like, no, you're wrong. This is a great name and it's going to work. So I hosted my first party 
And it was just a, it was almost like an overnight success. It was a little, I mean, I'd been doing a lot of stuff up to then. I mean, I was doing these uh, club nights which called Punks for Prada, which were almost like happy hours. I would get paid 50 euros to do them. So this is something that I do want to put out there in the world today that know that I used to go to work for about five to six hours, sometimes eight and earn 50 euros. And this is in my thirties. This is not in my twenties or teenage years. And this is me, Natasha, as a mother. So it took me a while to get that brand. When I found this club, we went in and it started and I just fell into nightlife. It was, again, it was not a destination I chose. And, you know, as I said, I've come from a very sort of a very different background from London, a very, very academic, eclectic background. And I found myself running parties. It was, I, I never had a manual to navigate that. It's funny that you speak about this sort of peripatetic journey to where you are. And I have to say, with a lot of the talents I've spoken to in this series, and never mind with a, a bunch of my peers in this industry, it, there has been so many trial and error in getting to, in, in how we got to where we, we are. Like, there is no sort of like linear, there's no linear path. So I have to say the, the, the sort of hyphenated, multi-hyphenated way to getting to where you are is almost standard for this, uh, the most recent generation of fashion professionals, if you will, and you're upholding, let's say, that tradition. Absolutely. Now, you spoke about, and let's get into the, into the culture of the, these environments and these spaces that you occupied. You, you mentioned earlier that an uh, earlier partner of yours had, had had some issues with drugs, and you have been very, very open. I've been very struck, um, in fact, by how open you've been about your own sobriety. And, you know, let's be honest, we all know that one of the byproducts of working in nightlife, particularly as it relates to fashion, is that their uh, substance abuse is a, is a is a big part of things and that's sort of rampant in in that sector of this industry and certainly sort of widespread is in, in this industry what were those years after sort of like finding your groove now in this space and realizing that this is some this is a space that you can occupy and be successful in now when did the problem start at least when it um as it relates to substance abuse well, substance abuse, if we want to call it that, or just substances to begin with, have always been a part of my life. As I said, I grew up in London, and I think substances are part of a life, as it is alcohol, as it is today as well. I see that in this generation of young kids as well. I don't think substance was a problem in my life until much later in my life, until I decided to get sober, which I've now been five years sober. I celebrated about two weeks ago. Congratulations. And, uh, that, that's major. That is, that, no, we have to, we have to mark that because sobriety, and we'll get a little bit deeper into this, sobriety to me, recognizing that change need, needs to be made and you've taken action to make that change. So I, that's very, very important to, to recognize and to honor. Thank you so much. And I'm really proud of it. And it's, as I said, it's not as hard anymore as I used to be. But I think that, that I got to, I got to a place, we can go into this a little bit later, but I think I got to a place, Jason, where I was, I felt the world was on my shoulders. I felt overwhelmed in every single way. I'd created a character. Her name was Natasha Slater, but it's not the Natasha Slater that we're talking to today. And that person, I realized I didn't like her very much anymore. And I didn't have, I didn't share values with her anymore. And she'd been very much created to navigate a nightlife lifestyle and a very hard driven fashion toxic lifestyle. And the Natasha Slater inside was dying. 
And I, you know, and that's when my substance abuse uh, really kicked in. I was very, very bulimic. I want to talk, I talk very openly about my eating disorders. Uh, I would say just before I got sober, I was, uh, I was bulimic four times a day minimum. I was using substances to stay awake. So I was not using substances to have fun and party. So this is when it gets really dangerous. And I was using substances to literally numb myself from the pain that I was in. I was in so much pain. And I did didn't know how to get out. I didn't know how to get out of that character because I built so much of my world around her. And I thought, well, who am I going to be if I'm not Natasha Slater, you know, Punks for Prada, nightclub promoter, if I'm not Natasha Slater, the PR hostess with the mostess, who am I? And I had to go on a journey through sobriety in order to find her. And, and it's been a journey. Five years, it's been a journey. I would say the first years were, were definitely difficult. And although you get sober at first, it takes a while to get sobriety. And what I mean by sobriety is that real peace of mind and that clarity. And that's only with time that you can take. And obviously, it's having to do a huge amount of work for me, the 12-step work, which I was doing, working with coaches, therapists, you know, opting for medications. I mean, there's a whole journey you have to embark on. And when you commit to that journey, you have to commit to it 100%. Because I think that when you decide change needs to happen, you need to drive the change. Nobody else is going to do it for you. This is a point where I have to discuss the, the sort of general attitudes around drug and alcohol sort of taking it in this industry. This is something that's not that's not widely discussed. I think people take for granted that there's just a lot of drugs and alcohol in fashion. And that's just a part of how we get on. But I don't I don't I never hear enough about how detrimental it can be and has been to certain talent. We hear about, you know, I think Mark Jacobs has been very vocal about his substance abuse. But remember the designer for Balmain, who was sort of just ushered out, you know, stage left without much fanfare, without much discussion. And this sort of like substance abuse thing was like a whisper uh, to the side. It was almost as though there's some still a taboo associated to it. The same thing with Phoebe Philo at Celine. No one spoke about uh, the alleged substance abuse that that uh, she was uh, dealing with at her at her tenure at Celine. So there's there's a sweeping under the rug of these things. And you only have to work in fashion for a brief time to see it in plain sight how much abuse of substances there actually is and how that very well impacts the way that we um, act in this business. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons that I'm, I'm a feisty London girl and I'm ballsy enough to talk about it because nobody else will. And I might get discriminated for it. And I'm sure a lot of people don't like the conversation that I'm having that I'm you know, I'm going to move certain people and I'm going to enroll certain people, especially when I talk about bulimia. I mean, people are not talking about bulimia. People don't talk about bulimia. I never thought I'd talk about bulimia, definitely not on a podcast. I mean, I thought I was going to take that to my grave. It was almost more acceptable to talk about substance abuse or alcohol abuse and bulimia. You know, that was really like the worst, you could say. That was the shame. I think, you know, the thing is, Jason, there's so much shame around basically failure and failure within ourselves. And that's what I try to do now with my work, especially with my work in Dinner Conversations, which is about empowering women. It's really about getting honest and having honest conversations. Because I also believe that if we want change, we have to be 
courageous enough to speak about experiences because there is a tendency, as you said, in the industry just to hide these people, escort them out, put them in, you know, sort of point the finger, look at what happened to John Galliano. But, you know, this is mental health issue. And I feel that the industry doesn't support mental health and mental health is a very, very serious conversation. And mental health today still gets continually discredited and people get discriminated with mental health disorders. And and I want to make sure that that conversation is happening and I'm connected with a lot of people that are willing to have those conversations today. I feel like that's where I want to be now. There's a lot of people in uh, the creative industry. I think one of the things that people forget about in the fashion industry, especially is that you talk about the glam, the fabulous, but very few people talk about the pressure and the high expectations. Uh, I mean, you know, the pressure from the clients for everything to be amazing, the pressure to look wonderful while you're doing incredibly difficult stuff. You know, there's just pressure, especially for women. There's a huge amount of pressure is placed and to the point that a lot of women end up sacrificing and compromising their whole personal lives. I mean, men and women for fashion and and that kind of, you know, gilded cage of basically fabulousness in the end is not very beautiful at all. So the inside is rotten. And we've seen it in so many cases with suicide attempts like Lee McQueen or even Stella Tennant recently. And, you know, again, why is this happening? And why aren't people having these conversations? You know, because uh, that's a problem. I feel people are ashamed to have these conversations. I had a problem and I needed to get help. And the first step is asking for help. But the first step is admitting you have a problem. I had a problem. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't making me a good person. I wasn't a good person when I had that problem. You know, substance abuse, mental health, these are not jokes. <laughs> you know, people don't even realize there's a lot of people walking around with mental health disorders and nobody's dealing with them. You know, a lot of companies put pressure on you to work huge amounts of hours a day. I mean, it's physically not possible. That, that's the bottom line. I know it's supposed to be fabulous and that's what people do in fashion, but it's physically not possible. And for me, at the end of my time at Punxsutra Prada and running my PR agency adjacently, I was working on a Friday, 22-hour days. Now, how are you supposed to do that sober? Well, here's the thing, Natasha. I mean, the industry may not be as willing and as quick to talk about mental health, but they are quick to talk about toxicity. And, um, as, and as we know, that has sort of flared up in this age. I think, you know, people have had time to, to go through their files and to sort of pick up things from the past and be like, wait, wait, wait a minute. We need to address some of these grievances from the past and, 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 and see if we can get some, some closure or if we can get some answers to some of these issues. And you have been caught up really in the line of fire on, in some of these discussions. And I, but I have to talk about this sort of cocktail that you spoke about before that you've been sort of um, building here in this conversation. You start, you talk about being a hard driven executive. We have to note that you talk about the sort of the toxic culture that was a part of the, you know, the environment back in those days. And we also spoke about the fabulosity that goes along with that. But look, look at the mix up of that. All of the, they all go together. You are hard charging, but also feeling fabulous in doing so. But also oozing out some level of toxicity in the midst of all of this. So it's almost, it's a, it's a, it's a cocktail that's, so it seemed like a cocktail at the time for doing business. 
But I want to break this down, though, as it relates to how you were caught up in this, let's say, criticism. And you were called out as one of the practitioners of unkindness. You know, you've been, you know, one of the abusers of power during this period. And you have not spoken about this publicly at all, Natasha. And I would like to give you the space to respond to this sort of toxic behavior that you've been accused of from your past. And building on, you know, outlining the, the, the ingredients of your life that led up to this period, I want to get a, and I would like the audience to get a real understanding of your behavior, your conduct, and the call-outs that's attributed to this period. Well, I want to begin by saying that I'm extremely sorry if people who work with me were offended by my behavior. I think that's the first thing that anyone needs to be accountable for. I have been called out by some people and by many others not. So I think that's the other thing. It's uh, the business world in fashion is very competitive, especially nightlife. Nightlife is a whole nother layer, which I mean, half of it we can't even talk about. But, you know, particularly in the fashion world, I was on the front line dealing with clients. And, you know, I've been hard on myself in meeting clients' expectations. And no doubt some of those tensions were also felt by people working with me. You know, when it comes to nightlife, you know, what's the party's done? Finding yourself in a room as a British blonde woman with 20 men and you need to get your money. That can be quite difficult and terrifying. And, and I think that there's a lot of tension. And of course, when we talk about substance abuse, and, and that's really everyone who's involved in this conversation is involved in that conversation too. And I think that you're working without boundaries. So one of the things that I can disclose is that I'm very glad that I don't have to do that anymore. I've also chosen, purposely chosen to move away from that world, as I said, five years ago. And I think that one of the things that I realize that you have to be accountable for your mistakes. You have to learn from what you've made. Once you've accepted your flaws, nobody else can use them against you because you've accepted them. And I don't think that in this industry, especially fashion, it's not like, you know, going to study economics or something. You're not given manuals. I also think one of the things that I learned in sobriety that I want to share in this conversation is that I didn't know anything about boundaries, Jason, when I was working within fashion nightlife. I really didn't learn anything about boundaries until I did a 12-step program. And I was like, wow, there are boundaries, you know? So you mean the person who's working with me shouldn't be in my house having dinner, breakfast and lunch and sleeping over and being my bestie, coming to every single party with me and then working with me in the day, at night, all sorts of hours. I mean, you know, it was craziness. And as much for anyone else, it was craziness for me. I'm grateful that I've had that experience in my life. And I've also done a lot of wonderful things. I don't want to focus just on anything negative because for everything negative, there's also been a lot of positives. I've lived a, an incredible life and I can only be grateful for that. Have I paid a hard price and a compromise for it many times? Absolutely. Can I choose not to have to do that anymore today? Yes. Do people still live like that? I, I can't tell you. I think there's still some of it going on. Absolutely. And although you mentioned I might have been called up, I mean, I could name many people that haven't. And I think that I cannot be responsible for an industry. That's for sure. You know, Th that's really all I can really say on it. But what I love today 
is that I get to have a completely different approach to my work. And I think that as again, I found myself doing a purpose driven project in a conversations because I think that I've learned from my past and now I can really offer real insight into what it means being a female entrepreneur, nightlife promoter, events person, having worked with the top, top brands and navigated a male dominated world single-handedly pretty much, although I have had great teams working with me and incredible people that I'd like to thank right now here in this conversation. And, you know, I, I look at my future and I feel, wow, I'm so glad I don't have to do nightlife anymore, though, even though I still think I'd like to go back and do a party and I do miss some of the allure, you know. But I think that that's the thing about the party world is that it, it's just not one thing. It, it, it's never going to be linear. You know, it's literally you go to work when everybody comes drunk and, and out of their face. And that's what you start navigating with. It's like going, you know, it's like getting into a, the cage with the lion and then expecting the lion not to bite you. It's kind of like, well, you're putting yourself in a dangerous place. You mentioned the devil wears Prada as sort of the lead motif for and for this industry for some time. I, I, I kind of want you to give a bit more attention to how definitive that sort of attitude was. I mean, I think the the devil wears Prada becomes this cult favorite, and it 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 it's said to speak really of the fashion industry or to define the fashion industry. But I don't really think people understand how definitive of the industry that was and i don't want to answer the question for you 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 you, you detail for me how how in fact that attitude was rampant you know what i want to tell you that i've learned i think that many women come into positions of power and they take on male behavior because that's how women are taught that they they, they need to act in order to get to the top and i think that one of the things that i'm grateful to have learned is that you can be extremely feminine and powerful today and you don't need to push bark or shout for what you need but I really think that most women were not given those opportunities and women that I know that I worked for I worked with a lot of very very difficult women as well at the top and men very difficult very demanding people that you know have no boundaries whatsoever and I just think that again it's we 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 worked in a, in a world where that was almost the way it was to get respect that's the role you had to play. And everybody just fall, fall, fell into that role and thought that that was the way to get respect. And, and you don't have to be in that role. But I think the industry at the time was like that. When it comes to nightlife, unfortunately to say, I have to say, if you are not, if you're a woman in nightlife, then unfortunately I have to say, you probably, especially in Italy, get nowhere if you weren't very, very tough. And that's because we're dealing with a, lot, a whole nother world, you know, and to get respect from Italian men. And it's really only Italian men in nightlife in Italy. And, and it's, you know, nightlife is not even a place for women, really, when you think about it. Because, uh, you know, over history, nightlife has never been a safe space for women. I mean, historically, women have been expected to stay home at night or to take care of families. And, you know, nightclubs, therefore, are not designed for women and their needs in mind. In fact, they usually center around men's pleasure and entertainment. You know, for instance, like clubs do special deals where they let women in for free to their events. And that seems like it's designed to help or be inclusive to women. But actually, it's really a device to get more women in the door so that men paying customers have more women to choose from. So, you know, there's so many, there's so many 
things really about nightlife. And, and, you know, when I got into nightlife, for me, I went in as a creative director. It was almost like I was editing this magazine when I first came to Italy called Rodeo. And, you know, for me, Punk So Prada was my magazine. It was like my edit. And it was my edit every week. But I just... I just didn't realize the whole business side of it and the whole running of the every single day and the fights I'd have to have every single week with the staff, with the owners, with, you know, about small city things just to make sure that the quality of my party was what I wanted my customers and my clients to have. And they could be really silly things from people behind the bar changing their vodka into cheap vodka. I mean, that might seem silly to somebody, but they don't know that that's happening. And, you know, I have to fight for my way to make sure that that didn't happen because I didn't want my customers, especially the young women coming in, to be drinking de-icer or something, you know. And a lot of people in nightclubs, they don't care. And I cared, you know. So it was always going to be more of a battle. I cared that the quality of the music was done properly. I cared that the experience, and I think that's what the success of Punk So Prada was. But I think that people really underestimate the amount of work. And of course, my team never saw any of that because uh, part of my job was to make that, you know, that really not to involve anyone else. And especially at the end of the night when it came to dealing with, you know, disclosing the financial aspects, that was, that started at five in the morning and that was like opening another book, <laughs> which maybe one day I will write about it in a book. But, but you know, it was, uh, it, you know, there were, there were moments where it was scary there were moments where I could fear for my life, for sure. There were moments where it was unpleasant and downright abusive. I, I've been abused many times. I've been, uh, I've been physically abused working in nightlife. I've been hit. I've, I've had all sorts of things and shenanigans happen to me. And again, these are things that people don't know about, that I don't disclose. And you don't disclose that because when you're inviting people to a party, you don't go promote that you've been physically abused by somebody because no one's going to come to your party next week. <laughs> Well, absolutely. But for those, and I, Natasha, I appreciate you disclosing, you know, your own history with, with uh, being the recipient of abuse. But for those who have accused you of, uh, of abuse, you can, and, you know, we have used this, this phrase in this um, uh, podcast for hurt people hurt people. But for those who have accused you of that, you can appreciate their needing for healing in this, you can in this do. age. I, yeah, uh, I this is a question. You can that do, Jason. Absolutely. And I, agree with you on that and as I said it's a conversation that should be had face to face because I ultimately believe in change as being open and honest with each other and coming from a place of love not coming from a place of hate as much as there is hurt and I think that there's going to be hurt when you work in an industry. As I said before, it's a very difficult industry. A lot of these people come with no experience and it is not what they expect. And definitely it wasn't what I expected. So I think, you know, it's you never want to justify anything that's happened, but it's we could get into it so personal and everybody's story is so personal that it's too difficult to generalize this either because we're living in a culture today where people just put things on the internet and one side of the story but there's not just one side of the story unfortunately jason you know there's many sides of the story but it's not my place to tell somebody else's side of the story and it's not my place to tell somebody what they should or should not share it's my place to elevate myself every single day and to be a better version of myself every day 
And to that end, how have you shaped your life differently to honor your new well, priorities? to begin with, I'm sober, as I said, five years. I decided pretty much to, it wasn't immediate, but I would say that I pretty much checked out of fashion today in many ways. I'm very much focused on dinner conversations, which is my women's empowerment project, which is really about shaping events with purpose. I needed purpose in my life and giving back to the community. I do a lot of work with Telefono Rosa, which is the national charity to end violence against women in Italy. And I think that today my life is possibly not as fabulous in some ways, but I like the quiet better. And, you know, I also think that in life we have to constantly reinvent ourselves. You know, who knows, maybe I'll become like a big old DJ in my 60s again or something. Or I was thinking about planning it for my 50th, you know, going back into that world. But I'm going back with a completely different perspective, you know, a completely different way of looking at the world. And I think that, as I said, I'm very grateful for the past I've had that's taught me the lessons I have today. But I definitely have a very peaceful life today. I mean, I don't, you know, I socialize smaller events, dinners. And when I work, if I do work at events, which I haven't done for the last year, but when I do, you know, I, I produce my events with my team. I have a great team now that I love and that loves me back and we support each other. And I have a completely different attitude to uh, to working today, to what I want and, and to the pace I want. But I definitely don't work at the pace I used to either. You know, that was, I remember I was doing Punk So Prada and then I was producing fashion events doing about nine in a five week fashion week. You know, everything was like being on a roller coaster all the time. So sometimes I look back at my life and I go, oh, my God, was that my life? How did I do that? And a lot of my friends who are very close to me in the period of Punks for Prada, they also say to me, I don't know how you did it. Because, you know, a lot of those people would be waiting for me at the end of the night or were be there and they saw the other side of things. I don't wake up with a hangover. I don't wake up with guilt. I don't wake up with regrets anymore. I don't wake up going, oh. God, you know, I wake up feeling, you know, mindful and good. And when I don't feel so good, I accept that I don't feel so good. And I know this too shall pass. And though you have sort of uh, you're more fashion adjacent these days, what is your forecast for the fashion industry utilizing your many years of experience and observation? So uh, I think fashion's this? in a, one of probably the biggest crises it's ever been in its life. And, and I think that that's a shame. And I think the main problem for that is that we have forgotten to honor true creativity. And that's what fashion was always about. That's what everything was about for me, Jason. Fashion was about the people, the talent, the designers, the music, you know, it was always about that. It was about incredible fabulous. I think what's happened, it's become far too much of a business and it has become greedy in its essence and it's killed a lot of creativity. So I think that a lot of talent suffers. I would really like to see a return of smaller designers and giving more space. You know, I think these huge corporations, I understand that they've done incredible business wise, but I think they have in some ways killed the allure of the fashion industry. So what do I think is the future? I think fashion will continue to sell to Asia, which is what they're doing. And I hope to see a resurgence of smaller brands having customers that care 
about sustainability. I think that you can't have a conversation without sustainability today in fashion. That's going to be very difficult for big corporations to have that conversation because, I mean, there's a lot of talk about sustainability. And I try to stay out of those conversations because (laughs) my opinion on that is literally I will roll my eyes. You know, it's like, well, close some of your shops if you believe in sustainability, you know. You know, you know, it's like Good starting point. all these people to work with uh, cars and sending them on planes. And, you know, when you work in the industry, you have a completely different vision of what the person outside of it is. And the other thing is, you know, do people need to spend 3,000 euros on a bag? And I, and I think that for me, you know, I know that there's been a lot of backlash on this recent Valentino campaign that came out showing a form of a, a nudity and with a, a bag. But my question is that we're talking about inclusivity, but is the price of the bag inclusive? Uh, this is what I don't understand about fashion. <laughs> exactly. I mean, from my point of view, this is just so simple. I'm like, I wish fashion would stop talking about inclusivity unless they're willing to adjust their prices to be more inclusive because that is why they're not inclusive. It's not who they put in their campaign or who they have here and there. I mean, the point is, can everybody afford their products? And, you know, how inclusive is that? So I think if you want to be luxury, you have to be luxury, you know, and luxury, part of luxury is staying a bit quiet and not making headwaves and going ahead and maybe being a little bit more boring and a little bit more repetitive, but offering a quality. So I think there's definitely a lack of quality in some of these products and a, a, a surplus of charge. So for me, I think fashion needs to be looking at these things. And I've been saying this for a very, very long time because when fashion, when I've been on any kind of talks and people say to me, oh, define why this brand is luxury, I'll say to me, well, is it luxury if they have five stores in one in one city? That's not luxury for me. Right. Not luxury as I know it. Right. Not luxury right. as an I grew up. Luxury is something that, it, you know, that you can't have that many of. Well, on that note, Natasha, I thank you so much for your for your observation on this industry, for relaying your history, working in this space for such a long time, and being um, and also talking about the some of these indelicate issues that has um, that has plagued you and has plagued some of us in this industry over time. I really appreciate your your transparency and uh, and candor so in this conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Jason. So thank you. And I wish you all the best much. with this podcast because it's really great. The work you do is incredible. And you know that I'm a huge, huge fan of yours since forever, since day one, basically. So I will always support everything you do. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciated. Thanks, Natasha. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Ciao. Bye.